0: Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Recently, I preached to you out of the book of Matthew on the story of walking on water. The title of my sermon of that time is, So You Want to Walk on Water? I think I brought out a a perspective on that, that oftentimes we read the story of Peter getting out of the boat and walking on the water, and the traditional lesson that we learn is that you ought to get out of your boat and walk on water. Peter didn't do so well. I think that fresh perspective, I think, uh, stuck with a lot of people. I've I've heard uh, people commenting on that. What I'm going to do today is I'm going to take the same story. I'm going to go to the book of Mark and read it there. And I can do this because the, the gospel writers, sometimes they had identical witness and agreement on what was happening. And they reported it so. They had things in common Sometimes they had a very unique perspective. You can go to one gospel writer and read the story and go to the next one and they'll bring out a detail or maybe a a, a comment that they see about this story that the others didn't make. And so that's what I'm going to do today is take advantage of the fact that Mark has a different perspective. And as a matter of fact, that's the title of my sermon today, Mark's Perspective. And his perspective will tell us about our faith, concerning your faith. So hang with me through this as we go again to that same story, uh, a different reference, the book of Mark instead of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, and John, all three include this story of walking on water. Luke does not tell this story. Only Mark and John observe that Jesus entered the boat. Matthew doesn't record that. All three accounts place this immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. All three of them take note of the fact that the disciples were battling against the wind. And they were growing weary. Mark agrees with Matthew's version that the men in the boat mistakenly believed that Jesus was a ghost. But John doesn't mention that part. Only Mark makes the connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and this event. I said all three of them placed this after the feeding of the 5,000. But only Mark says that that event played any significant role in the behavior of the men in this event. All the others didn't take note of that. So that's one of the points we will make today. Mark says that when Jesus entered the boat and the winds and the waves were stopped, the men were amazed. And he adds this. After he said that they were amazed at what Jesus did, he said, because they did not understand the miracle of the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. He's the only one that says that. So if we preach from Matthew's account, Matthew emphasized Peter getting out of the boat and his attempt to walk on water. So we might preach, and I did preach on that, that maybe there's something to be learned about blind ambition, about not really following God's lead, but taking your own lead, and how that can sometimes lead to some unnecessary struggles in our life for doing that. If we preach from John's account and what John focused on, we might be able to talk about the miraculous ability of God to deliver us out of our troubles because John points out that Jesus got on the boat and immediately the boat was on shore. It's just a little phrase there, but we overlook that. We don't even see it in the other accounts. It was boat, men, everything transported in a nanosecond. They were in the middle of the storm. Jesus boards the boat, and they're safe. Now, how many of you want your problems solved just like that? You're going to stand on that promise. But it doesn't always happen, does it? When I pray, I'm always praying to immediately be taken out of this and into safety, and then I'll have this wonderful testimony but sometimes he makes me bore through the trial and gets me to the other side, and my testimony is, I survived. (laughs) By God's grace, I'm still alive. I'm still hanging on. So preaching from Mark's account, let's keep in mind a couple of unique, valuable bits of information that I will include in points number two and point number three. But because I needed a point number one, I'm going to take another bit of information that is common to some of the other writers as well. Let me move through this as quickly as I can. I will point out for you that the key passage for point number one is this. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, just based on that portion of the story... Here's what I glean from this. First of all, we see the conditions under which these people were rowing against the wind. And we've all experienced times in our life when we feel like we're not making the progress we want to make or we expect to make. You are doing your own version of rowing against the wind. It gets tiring, doesn't it? It makes you mentally weary to work and work and work and not feel like you're making any progress. Anyone here, you ever tried to uh, do something without feeling like any sense of accomplishment and you end up feeling like you're running a 100-yard dash, but you're loaded with weights and they could time you with a calendar? You ever felt like that? Anybody here, you ever get just a little bit, just a little bit financially ahead, and you begin to feel better. At last, we're just getting over that hump. And then all of a sudden, something comes crashing into your life and wipes out all of your progress. And you feel like I'm right back to zero. Okay, everybody's on board with that. There goes the vacation. There goes the opportunity to trade the car. There goes that nice night out we had planned. It just went up in smoke right there. Feel like you're always rowing into a headwind. You jump in, ladies and some men, out of fairness, and do piles and piles and piles of laundry. And you think, I'm making headway till you wake up the next morning. And it reappears. You think, I'm not making any progress here. You just don't seem to sometimes be able to get out of debt. Spending your life rowing against the headwinds. Maybe you and your spouse working on your relationship. It's been a rocky road for too many years. And lately it seems like you've had more bad days than you've had good days. But you hit this streak where everything seems to be getting better. You're smiling at each other. You're talking. You're joking. You're laughing. Then you have this little blow up and you're right back to square one. And throughout your marriage, you say, It seems like we've been rowing against the wind if we could just catch a favorable wind sometimes so we could throw the sails up and get some help, it would make all the difference in the world. Well, we've all been there. We've struggled. But what about spiritually speaking? Because all these other things are just examples to help us to relate to the struggles of working and not feeling like you're succeeding. But what about spiritually? What about you struggle to try and please the Lord? And you've had two good weeks living for Him. You think one more week and you will be eligible for sainthood. And all of a sudden you hit that place in the mountain where you lose your footing and you're right back down at the bottom. I look at the mountain from the valley and saying, I've lost all of my progress. And I have to start all over for the Lord. So sometimes it just seems like everybody's got a motorboat. And you'll, all you have is a pair of oars and you're rowing against the wind. Seems like you're constantly in a climb when the rest of the world's on the other side of the mountain going down on a roller skate. Lord, why am I always climbing the mountain? Why is it everybody is rafting down the river with the current and I feel like a salmon my entire life? And that kind of helps us understand the frustration of these men who are rowing against the wind just don't feel like they're making any progress i've been there spiritually i understand what's going on here let the holy spirit apply that to you because you see the second point of this is god knows from the mountaintop where he had gone to pray after he had launched these people off on the boat there was a stunning view of the sea of galilee but even on a bright day looking at this body of water that was from 6 to 10 miles across. Even on a sunny day, humanly, it would not be reasonable or feasible or possible to stand on top of the mountain and see a boat 3 miles, 4 miles out in the middle, And tell, I can see from here those men are rowing and there is a grimace on their face and they are struggling and they are discouraged. Now, you wouldn't be able to detect that from the mountaintop. But it wasn't daytime. It was night. And it wasn't just a human. It was the Son of God. So he doesn't need daylight. He doesn't need favorable conditions. He knows what you're going through. And you often wonder, God, here I am struggling, trying to get ahead, trying to make progress in whatever way you're, you're relating to that. And you get to the point where you just say, God, do you even see me? Do you even care? Do you hear me? I'm crying out to you. And part of this story, the inspirational aspect of it is that he knows, he sees, because the Bible says when Jesus was praying, it was later in the night, And he saw the men in the boat. He was able to do that. I can't do that. You can't do that. But he saw them. He sees you. He knows. He cares. He understands. He sees your struggles. He knows your frustrations. He hears your cry in the middle of the night. He sees your tears when you turn your head so nobody else can. But he knows. I was going through one of those really, really difficult times as a pastor. And it was working on every fiber of my faith to tear me down. And I had a deacon come up to me. And he knew how tough it was. And it wasn't one of those things where you just can solve the problem. It was difficult. And it had not been going on for days or weeks or months. It had been going on for years with no break. I felt like I was rowing and not making any progress. And I just had a deacon walk up to me. And you know, every once in a while somebody says something that it just lodges in your heart and you don't forget it till the day you die. He just said, Pastor, he knows. And he walked away. And that was enough at that point. That's all I needed. I needed that gentle reminder. I wasn't fighting this alone. He knows. And the Holy Spirit just unpacked it. He knows. And everything that you let the Holy Spirit unpack, it just gets broader. It gets richer. It gets deeper. He knows. Let him unpack that for you today. You're struggling? He knows. The third thing I want to say about point number one is we read here he comes just at the right time. It was late at night when he saw them, but it was later than, than that when he actually came to them. Now, don't you find God's timing curious? He didn't go when he saw them. It was a deliberate pause on God's part. We struggle with God's deliberate pause. He does it for a reason. And if you will join me in the circle of human thinking, we don't like that. We pray, we are confident He knows, and He's not moving. And that frustrates us. We feel like the souls under the altar. How long, O oh Lord? How long? I know you know. I know you see me. I know you hear my cry, but you're not moving near fast enough. I'm hurting down here. We've been there. How frustrating that is. But He moves in His own time, His timing is perfect. And it's during that time between knowing. We know that he knows and our expectations that because you know you ought to be moving right now and the realization he's not moving yet, that the devil comes in and begins to work on us. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care. He doesn't hear you. He's not real. And all of these other arguments. And that's where really you have to hold on with all the faith that you have, knowing that not only does he know, he sees... And he's going to help, and it's not yet. But he is going to be there in the right time. It's this deliberate decision on Christ's part. He had sent them off by themselves. He knew if this three-hour trip had now already taken more than six hours, and they weren't even there yet. They weren't necessarily in grave danger. Were not led to believe the boat was ready to capsize. They just weren't getting where they needed to go. And it was all night long. They were toiling and rowing. And to further frustrate them, if I'm making progress on land, I have landmarks. I can measure my progress by a tree, a rock, a a building, or something that I'm coming towards. But they were in the water so that you didn't have the immediate reference points. You're just looking at water. I went fishing in the Gulf a few years ago. We got on a chartered boat. And the boat took us about 25 miles, I think, out in the Gulf. When you get to where you can't see land or you have no perspective of the land, then you lose the sense of making any progress. You can hear the motors roaring. And you can see the waves splashing. But there's no way for you to get a fix on anything to know you're going anywhere. So it was a very unusual experience for me to sit on this boat and trust we're really going somewhere. We're really getting there. I felt like we waited and waited and the boat churned and, and the waves chopped. And, and I thought, we're, we're, not, we're not getting anywhere. They didn't plan this trip very well But, you know, eventually they got to the spot where we were going to fish. There was no reference point. I find that a lot of times in my walk with God. I lose my reference. And when I really am making progress, maybe I can't tell it. Or when I think I'm making progress, I'm not. I lose lose all kinds of perspective here. But these men not only could not see a reference point in the water, they couldn't see land because it was dark. And they were rowing physically, manually, trying to get this boat forward, thinking that surely they're just going to bump into land. They can't see it, but surely they're going to hit land. A three-hour trip already more than twice the time. They say, well, it could take a little longer, but surely we're close. They weren't even close. It would have been about 3 o'clock in the morning or perhaps later and then he decides it's time to go and help them what gives how many have questions to ask god when you get there write that one down if you're going to rescue me why can't you just do it sooner than later what's with all this making me worry and fret and stew and get all worn out before you finally come along and say i'm here to help or where you been it's hard for us to get our brains around this. So here it is, about three o'clock in the morning, hours after he already knew they were in trouble and saw them, and he decides now it'd be a good time to show up. And here he comes walking on the water. And so it's a test, is what it is. It's a test of endurance. It's a test of whether you're really going to keep on rowing or give up. Because with the headwind they had, had they quit, they would have lost their progress. They could have eventually ended back on the same shore they started from. God is testing your commitment. He's testing your endurance. He's not worried about the progress you're making. When he snapped his fingers and the boat was on the other shore, he can take care of the progress. He's not measuring that. You're measuring that. What's he measuring? He's measuring whether you give up or not. He puts you in a situation just to see if you'll keep rowing even in the midst of your discouragement. That's what he's watching. And I've seen too many people who did quit rowing the boat. They just measure the circumstances around them. It's not worth it. I'm not getting anywhere. anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I quit. But God can make up all the lost time. That's not the point. Don't quit. Don't quit rowing your boat. Don't give up. Hang in there. That's what he's watching. Are you committed? Because what they were doing was in obedience to him, he said, get on the boat and go to the other side. That was their only job, is to keep working towards getting to the other side. That's all he expected of them. The minute you quit working towards what God has called you to do, that's when you've lost it all. He's never late. He doesn't pay any attention to your earthly timekeeping mechanisms. Not your watch, not your calendar. He pays no attention to that. He doesn't care about your appointment books. He comes when it's the right time. You keep rowing. Don't give up. Don't quit. Because the answer, my friend, is truly on the way. Point number two. This is where Mark brings his unique perspective. Learning how to trust God. The key passage is this. They were amazed because they did not consider the miracle of the loaves. In short, they didn't learn what they were supposed to learn from the previous experience that's what mark points out here the other gospel writers didn't see it they didn't focus on that but mark in telling this story brings to light this valuable priceless bit of information they didn't learn how to trust god when it was very clear he was trustworthy now Irrational fears prevent us from functioning properly. They prevent us from building our faith. I have one irrational fear that I can think of. I don't like spiders, but I'm not worried about spiders. I can handle them. I don't like snakes, but I can handle snakes. I can do it. But I have acrophobia. I have this unnatural, irrational fear of heights, and it's it's spotty, it's illogical. I can get on an airplane and I can fly, and I'm uh, there's nothing underneath of you, and I'm fine. But I can't go up a tall building. That thing's going to crumble when I get up there. I know it is. It's irrational. I can't explain it. I force myself, but I, I, I can't get rid of the apprehension. It just, it just almost cripples me. Do we have irrational fears concerning God? Sometimes we do. You know it? As much as I struggle with the high places, the high structures, it's when we have irrational fears about God He proves himself over and over and over again, and it fails to build our faith. We have this paralyzing doubt that prevents us from learning to trust him. The irrational fears. I mean, you might remember the time when you were saved and what a miracle that was, but you're having a real hard time for trusting him to take care of you. That's an irrational fear. He's proved himself. You read the record of God. He's proved himself. And to doubt him, to have any fears whatsoever, is irrational. And that's when it really becomes a problem for us. Second thing is that Mark observes that their hearts were hardened. And this is interesting terminology. They did not consider the miracle of the loaves because their hearts were hardened. And when we talk about a hardened heart... What we generally associate that with is some kind of wickedness, evil, rebellion against God, hardened heart, and sin is involved in the hardened heart, and and we have examples of how the Bible talks about people who had a hardened heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, remember that? And we understand the dynamics of Pharaoh's hardened heart. He was resisting God. I understand what a hardened heart means. And the writer of Hebrews warned the believers not to harden their hearts as the people did in the days of rebellion in the wilderness. So I understand that hardened heart. But these were Christ's disciples. They were not rejecting Christ they were not in rebellion against him. They were out there in the middle of the night rowing a boat because he told them to. They loved him. They were trying to follow him. And the Holy Spirit inspires Mark to say, those men have a hardened heart. He, how do we reconcile men who are trying to do what God asked him to do? To walk in obedience and to have this accusation, you got a hard heart. You, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't appreciate me. If I were to look you in the eye and say, your problem is, you got a hard heart. I mean, I know how you would take that. But the fact of the matter is, there is a sense that here we are in this church today, and we are completely sympathetic to the things of God. We are completely open to the truths of His Word. We are offering up our voices in worship and praise and adoration to Him. And somehow we can still have a problem with a hardened heart. That's what Mark is teaching us. We need to get a hold of. Everything else can be in order. And we can still have a problem with the heart. I'm reasonably sure we're not comfortable giving that any serious consideration for ourselves. We don't want to think of ourselves as having a hard heart. And your response and your defense is going to be, but I love him. But I'm following him. I can't have a hard heart. But if you are unable to process God's proof in your life, and you come to the point where you have this, this, this difficulty in believing Him, this stronghold that keeps you from trusting Him, the fact of the matter is you're not letting God's proof God's history, really get a hold of your mind and your heart. We can sing, Jesus, Jesus, oh, how I love him. How I've proved him over and over and over. But then we come to that point where we really need God to pull one through for us and we're saying, I just don't know if he's going to or not. And that's a hardness. What does God have to do to ever get us to the point where we trust him implicitly? What is it going to take? In direct obedience to God's directions, the disciples loaded up on that boat, started across the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida. The journey probably was five to seven miles. Even a slow boat. Let's just kind of break this down. Moving at two miles an hour. The trip would have only taken two and a half to three and a half hours to get there. And they weren't there. And they were afraid when Jesus came to them. And Mark says they were afraid because they had this heart problem. The disciples were right there in the middle of the unfolding of this miracle of the loaves. Now catch the dynamic here. They were a part of... It wasn't just a momentary miracle where it happened in a split second. It was gone. If you weren't looking, you missed it. No, this was a protracted miracle. Once again, we have to consider how long it took for this miracle to take place. 5,000 people at least. And oftentimes, they only counted men. They didn't count the women and the children. How many people were there? We're going with the biblical number of 5,000 by their uh, method of of accounting and reckoning. And... now they've been there too long and they realize when people get hungry, they get restless. And the disciples rustle up one little boy that happens to pack his lunch and has five loaves of bread and two fish. And they come to Jesus and say, this is all we can find. We've got a situation. And Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and he begins to break it. And for some reason, the breaking of the bread and the breaking of the fish doesn't diminish the quantity that is remaining wouldn't you have loved to have been up there and just see it happen how you break bread and still have enough to break it again and, again and 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 feed 5000 people wouldn't you just like to watch this is the bread growing every time he breaks it what's going on and how do you logistically break out 5 minimum 5000 servings for people. How long does it take you to make a serving for people? Well, let's say it's 30 serve- let's say he's cranking out 30 servings per minute. That's going 2 per second. Or 1 per 2 seconds. I'm sorry. 1 per 2 seconds. That's 1800 an hour. You've got 5000 even at that pace, it's going to take three hours just to break the food. Because no matter how Jesus can be unlimited by time, he's still got disciples there that have to physically get this food to the people, have them sit down, organize this thing, get them fed. They didn't feed them in five minutes. How many of you ever been to some of those banquets you've got to go to and you get set at the table that just happens to be the last one served? Isn't that the most frustrating thing in the world? And you come and they serve the table on that side and they serve the table on that side and you know the next one's got to be you then they serve the one behind you. Because the waiters are not in sync with anything. It gets so frustrating. And even if it takes 20 minutes to get everybody served, I get gnarly. So here you've got 5,000 people waiting to be served and they see the food coming. And if it's taking two or three or four or five or six hours, I don't know what it took. It took a while to get that out there. And this whole time... As Jesus is breaking the bread and every time they come back and say there was only five loaves and two fishes, we're going to run out and they come back and they find more servings ready to go. It's a miracle in the process. They are a part of this for an extended period of time. It's not two seconds. It's not five seconds. For hours they lived in a miracle. Isn't that enough? To know that the man that can break the bread and the fish and feed the 5,000 and store up 12 basketfuls when it's over can take care of you. Isn't that enough? Isn't that sufficient? But if it's not, you got a hard heart. You remember when God saved you and forgave you and cleansed you from all unrighteousness. He wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life and gave you a hope and gave you a future when all was dead restored your mind, restored your career, but you just can't see God as the God over the simple little strongholds in your life. Oh, I believe that He can do these miraculous things, but I don't think He's going to do these little things for me. You read about the God who parts the waters and raises the dead and cures the leper, makes the lame to walk and the mute to talk, but you don't believe He can put your marriage back together because that's a hard one. You got a hard heart? You're right about the man who looked at the adulterous woman and said, your sins be forgiven and go and sin no more. But you think he can't forgive your sin because it was too wrong. Too heinous. You carry your guilt with you from your past like you're carrying cheap luggage all the time because you can't believe him to forgive you. Then some of you, you can believe you can be forgiven, but you can't believe you can be free. I believe I'm saved. How do you know? Show me something. What changed on your body when you got saved? Where did he put the stamp on your body that you got saved? You accept it by faith when you start talking to people about he can set you free. I don't know about that. You've got a hardened heart. He's just the God of certain things and not the God of everything. But what does God have to do to give us proof He is sufficient? What does He have to do? How can we get our brains around that? Well, help me preach it today. I want you to say something for, for me. Can you say this? Say, He is God. Say, He can do anything. Say, Nothing is impossible for Him. Say, He's bigger than all my problems. Say, He's bigger than all my fears. Say he's bigger than all my sicknesses. Say he's bigger than all my debts. Say he's bigger than all my mountains. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? He can do all things. Or did you just say it because I told you to? makes a difference. Number three. This second unique thing that Mark brings out, I've called it, it's your move. Key passage is he would have passed them by. There are these times when God waits for you to make the first move. Now, Jesus left the mountaintop and walked on the water and came to them. And Mark puts this little bit of information down that we're trying to make sense out of. He would have passed them by. Wait a minute. You're going to go through all the trouble to go out there from the mountaintop, walk on the water, and wave at them and say, see you on the other side. Is that really what this is all about? He would have... You really, God, would have passed them by? Really, God? Here I am down here. I'm I'm struggling, I'm losing my faith, and I see you, and you wave at me, glad to see you, and you would have passed me by? I don't get this, God. Because it is a prime example of one thing. He's waiting for you to make the move. And sometimes we see Christ there, and we think, when are you going to do something? And the answer is this, when you ask me to. He's not just automatic. He's not Superman that runs around saving the world all day long without somebody calling out to him. Sometimes he wants to know that you want him. He will pass you by if you're not willing to call out to him. Sometimes he just comes to make himself available. But if he's not welcome, he's going on. He would have passed them by. We see this principle in Scripture. In the book of Genesis, Jacob wrestled with this. We call him the angel all night long. We recognize that at the end, whenever Jacob said, I will call this place Peniel. He said, for I have seen God face to face. We realize that who he was wrestling with, he was wrestling with God. And come the break of the morning, the Bible says he made like he wanted to leave. And Jacob grabbed a hold of him and said, I won't let you leave unless you bless me. That's what God wants. He's got up many times from your wrestling match. And he said, well, I'm leaving. And you just said, bye. What he really wanted, what he really wanted was for you to grab a hold of him and said, don't go, don't go. I want you to stay and bless me. He said, I believe I will. You make the first move. You read in the 18th chapter of Genesis where... Abraham is camping out in his tent, minding his own business, and he sees these men in the distance and recognizes them to be holy beings. There's, a, there's an inference here that God, Abraham recognizes he's in the presence of a holy and almighty God. And they're just kind of loitering around. And he's wondering, what are they doing? I don't understand what, uh, what's going on. And they made like they were going to go on by him. And he said, wait, 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 wait. Stay a while. I believe I will thanks for the invitation Jesus himself after he had risen from the the tomb walked with two men and they were unaware of the presence of Christ himself and he he began to probe them he said what what are you what are you talking about I heard you talking about something and so they recount this whole story to Jesus the resurrection, the empty tomb, and how they were dismayed about the empty tomb, and there was no evidence of Christ anywhere, and they're, they're really they're puzzled, they're despondent. And the Bible says Christ began to explain to them how the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied about this very matter. And still they don't get it. And the Bible says as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as though he was going to go a little bit farther. Here it is. And these men sat Stay with us. He said, I believe I will. Just needs an invitation. That's all. God tests you to see if you're going to invite him into your life. If you're going to ask him for any help. I mean, this is the guy that has the answer. Why not? Why not? God, I need your help. Will you come? He said, I believe I will. Just waiting for your request. He pretends like he could go on by. And the sad part is those people who let him. I don't need your help, God. I can do this. If I ask for your help, you're going to expect something from me. I can handle this. There might even be people here today. You're going to leave this sanctuary and God has an answer. And all you have to do is come down here and make yourself available and get in touch with him and find that communion with him. And you're going to get up and you're going to walk out of here. I can handle it God it's going to be okay I can see a way okay and he would have passed him by he's probably passed us by many times when we were too stubborn and too prideful to say won't you tarry with me you don't want to trouble him you don't want to bother him. He thought you could handle it yourself. But don't let him pass by. Bring him in your boat. You can't do it. Just give up. Let Jesus take over. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so prideful. I know many times I, I make invitations for people to come down and touch God. And sometimes people don't move because physically they just can't make the trip, I understand. Physically they can't kneel. and They say, I'll sit here and pray. God knows. But I'd think once in a while, once in a while, everybody could make at least one trip. To get up off their mat and drag it down here and lay it before God and say, God, I need you. It just makes me wonder how desperate you are. Lord, do not pass me by. Do not pass me by. Would you meet him here today? Bow your heads.